2: They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+.
3: It's what I use. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening.
1: What? I, I'm not sure, but I could tell that you're very focused grounded and yet ephemeral all at the same time
3: Mm, ephemeral it's my that's my favorite artery out of all of them that was
1: a legitimate pun right there you 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 score points for that one man
3: i kind of lost points i think puns are sort of
1: like uh, the lowest form of humor that people laugh some
3: would say sarcasm some named mr wild would say it's the lowest form of humor the lowest form of wit the highest form of intelligence. I would buy that.
1: Um, I don't know if that was our show opening, in which case that would be the first time that I've never said, you're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey, but that might be a better show opener. So we'll figure that one out. What if there was a way to level
2: up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io Dave for a seven-day free trial.
1: In case you haven't noticed, if you're watching on YouTube, you might have figured this out. I have a guy sitting next to me here who is pretty well known, at least if you're on the internet. Whose name is JP Sears. So he's here at Bulletproof Labs at my house. We've been having him do all sorts of cryotherapy and other crazy biohacking stuff here. And I'm actually going to interview him today about some kind of cool stuff that you might not know about JP Sears. And he might actually answer at least one question without a humorous response, but I'm not sure.
3: That's, well, that's a might with a capital M. Uh, so I'm, and I'm looking forward to getting into things that I don't know. About me. Well,
1: here's something about uh, about the cool fact of the day, which is something that I've had in every show, and it's that according to this guy, Oscar Wilde, sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, but the highest form of
3: intelligence. But you mm-hmm. stole my cool fact of the day. Did
1: Did you say you did that?
3: I. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, is there anything else I can do to steal your thunder? I'm sure that you'll find something, JP. Uh, but that's all right.
1: You know, my thunder was really just like a drizzle today.
3: I feel like your your self esteem is getting lower. I've been wanting to upgrade
1: my self esteem. Is, is that possible?
3: Yeah, just mold free coffee is the best self esteem upgrade possible. But I will say this: <laughs> you're ridiculous in the best way possible. I love it. Thank you, sir. But you mentioned Oscar Wilde, and he has another thought that I absolutely love. He suggests that life is too important to take seriously. And one of the reasons why I absolutely love hanging around you, and I tell this to everybody I know when I'm talking about you behind your back, but saying good things behind your back, is you are like a giant child with a gi- with a very intelligent brain. But I think one of the reasons why you have such a magnetic... Uh, charisma around you is you exude playfulness and to me you embody the idea life is too important to take seriously which is ironic you do very serious stuff you change the world you change lives and you do it with a playful mindset and that's something that's incredibly inspiring to me
1: wow that's like a massive compliment thanks man You're you're welcome i appreciate that See, I, I keep going into this this like cool fact of the day stuff, and we just keep talking about like all this other stuff. Like me, no, I'm kidding.
3: <laughs> fact <laughs> of the day: Dave Asprey is cool. You're,
1: you're rubbing off on me. I'm, I'm becoming more egotistical just sitting around you, JP.
3: Well, you you are, but I'm a little more humble than you. <laughs> I'm the most humble person I know.
1: So, it, if you guys don't know JP Sears' work, you've got to check out his YouTube channel. Uh, he's done basically, I don't know what to call them, roasts is maybe an appropriate thing. It's just hilarious things about uh, paleo, about uh, biohacking, about vegan diets, about pretty much any sacred cow or sacred vegan cow that you can find. He is slaughtered in the, the most like self-deprecating, hilarious way possible. Uh, so I hope you must have like a YouTube URL or something. Like, Where do you send people to find your stuff? Because if you haven't seen at least some of his stuff, you, you probably have seen it. You don't know you've seen it. But where yeah. do people go for this? Because it's, uh, it's awesome.
3: Uh, Awaken with JP. So that's where you can check out all my stuff on YouTube and Facebook. And if, of course, if you find me incredibly offensive, then those are the places where you want to avoid going.
1: Well, let's let's talk about sarcasm for a minute here.
3: Mm.
1: There's actually real research on sarcasm. And the research says something that... It improves creativity and cognitive function. Mm. And this is neuroscience kind of kind of level of stuff. So basically thinking of it does one thing and delivering it does another thing. Hmm. But on the flip side, the stuff that that I teach, especially at the 40 Years of Zen when we're, we're looking at these advanced like ego awareness sort of things, pretty much whenever you're using sarcasm, there's an element of, of anger that's mm. behind it. Yeah. like like you wanted to say something so the idea of you know of act with kindness and things like that i've actually yeah. I, I have a very sarcastic wit people listening probably wouldn't believe that but,
3: but I, i'm sure they wouldn't <laughs> no,
1: i actually like toned it way down cuz i realized even if i was meaning to be humorous sometimes i was hurting people's feelings and yeah. i'm like like i want to uh, i want to progress through the world like like with you know be kind to others as sort of a primary thing to do but then like it is kind of fun to like be a little bit unkind to someone just because they needed it Yeah. and so your form of sarcasm is usually though not it, like you, you'll make fun of something that, that I would say needs needs attention on it but you end up redirecting it back to yourself at the end of the day so like yeah. like you're, you're sort of the, the butt of the joke at the end of the day versus yeah. the person whose belief system you're insulting slaying and otherwise uh, poking holes in
3: yeah is that on purpose? yeah to me it is I think sarcasm. And I hadn't heard that research, but I totally vibe with it. I do think at the root of all sarcasm, I mean, listen to the, the word s- sarcasm, scarcasm. I think it, it really does have its roots in pain. And I know my humor, it comes from my pain. When I was a, a child, the, the way I sort of survived psychologically is I learned to make people laugh. Mm-hmm. So the idea of if I can make someone laugh, I feel like I matter to them. So that helped me like cover up my sense of insignificance inside with a temporary, like, four or five minute bout of significance coming from the outside. So I would, my sarcasm became a way of covering up my pain. So when it comes to expressing humor with uh, sarcasm or satirism, which I think comes from Saturn.
1: Uh, Saturn? No, I think that comes from those half goat, half horse like half it's not it sound like it all
3: the vegans out there already uh
1: it's no it's a dish it's like half goat
3: half tofu and you mix it all up that that sounds disgusting (laughs) but nonetheless when one expresses their humor like yes i do believe there's pain in it so are we projecting that pain onto someone else and hurting them Mm -hmm. or are we essentially owning our pain And therefore, I think shining a light to help other people get in touch with their pain rather than having the humor inflict pain on them. And that's why I think self-deprecating humor, I think with a a compassionate consciousness towards self rather than using self-deprecating humor to shame self and just hurt our pain even more, I think that's important to be aware of so that humor doesn't become a way of just hurting other people, which to me it absolutely can humor is a powerful energy powerful psychological energy Mm -hmm. light side is i think it it can be like an alchemist of healing and self-awareness and shadow side is i think it can be a knife that cuts into people
1: well i mean there's the the sort of dick joke comedians with you know three-hour podcasts where it's mostly just kind of just just chewing on stuff yeah uh, where sometimes it's funny but it, it's like you, you kind of feel a little dirty and when you're done yeah. listening to it and there's a, the, another side of it where you're like okay like it was damned funny but i feel uplifted by that instead of like like angry
3: yeah so. for for sure and i think like lis- like listening listening if i can like use a big word listening <laughs> that was tough Listening to our biofeedback, like how do you respond to humor that you're using or someone's using around you? If you hurt, like I our feelings don't lie. I think Carl Jung said it best, our feelings are the language of our soul. I think they come from a very deep place of truth inside of us. So if we feel worse and heavy and like fatigued from a conversation or listening to people joke, it's like, wow, that was probably hurtful humor and we can be amused, we can be laughing, but laughing is a form of weeping. It can be us like emoting pain because we're experiencing pain being inflicted on us with humor. And but to me, the light side of humor, it's one of my favorite, I would honestly call it a psychological biohack. I really would I think when we can laugh not at ourselves, but with ourselves and with other people. You get the whole shot of endorphins. It's an uplifting experience. And I think also another angle that humor is a powerful biohack is it helps us not take ourselves so seriously. I'm a big fan of have beliefs, but don't believe your beliefs. And I think when we can use humor as the force of detachment so we can have our beliefs, but not be so attached and just believe our beliefs, to me, that's one of my favorite kind of like psychological brain biohacks.
1: So, so, so you're saying humor can make people maybe less tribal?
3: Absolutely.
1: And at the same time, if it's applied wrong, if, if you're only making fun of the other side and not of yourself, then it actually increases tribalism, right?
3: For for sure. And actually, just so I'm clear, what do you mean by tribalism? Well,
1: you with... The way I see tribalism, it's always like an us versus them thing. Ah. So, like, okay, I, I'm, I'm bulletproof, and they're they, you know, McDonald's, they're bad people, and yeah. and you sort of like build walls between people. But end of the day, what that those walls do is they make you stop thinking about what you're doing, about yeah. what they're doing, and make it about good versus evil, which is just a, a straight up way to stop thinking and use your emotions. Very old, like primitive emotions, instead of actually using your rational brain and just realizing, oh, maybe we just disagree about like what to put on our goddamn plate. For does it really matter?
3: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I don't know who it is, like the Zen people. That'll make me sound intelligent if I say this is a Zen quote. (laughs) The Buddha said this too, and like whoever else is dead, whose attorneys aren't going to sue me for like misrepresenting them. (laughs) So the Buddha said this, and like uh, whoever else, Abraham Lincoln probably. Uh, they suggest that the source of all disease is a sense of separation. And I know that really oversimplifies things yet. I think it's also a very helpful consideration. So if we're increasing tribalism, us versus them, that's separation. And to me, part of the beauty of humor, the light side of humor is it's a form of communication, communion. Mm -hmm. So it decreases tribalism, increases our sense of connection. So if all disease is created by a sense of separation then maybe health and healing and an increased quality of life comes through more connection connection with thyself and connection with our community
1: well you've you've definitely cracked the code because uh, a lot of people in fact I, I think most people who've seen your work have no idea that you're a holistic coach advanced practitioner like like you've actually done a lot of a lot of your own work on that front mm, yeah. And that translated into a hundred million views on YouTube, which is like a, an, an insane number. Uh, I believe that I have five million, so I, I'm sort of feeling insignificant. Oh,
3: it's, of uh, uh, you know. Who's the real name? <laughs> but
1: it, it's when I have no idea what my numbers on YouTube are, but that seems like a, about right, whatever. But uh, uh, you, you've definitely done something different because. The virality of the stuff that you say, like when you put together a video like that, people just share it because you did something that wasn't maybe as hurtful as you know just a rant. And and we certainly see like hurtful rant shared sometimes. Yeah. but it's it's a different energy to it. And I think it does get shared more. And I don't know if, if anyone, if you or anyone else has ever done quantitative, analysis on that but there's something a different vibe in what you do that i haven't really mm. seen from other comedians and that was why i wanted to have you on the show plus we just got to be friends when you started making fun of biohacking and i was like you have to be on
3: because yeah well. i i love to make fun of what's important to me <laughs> <laughs> mm. yeah and i and i think part of You know, when someone's on social media and they click share, Mm -hmm. and I've been very blessed by whoever's up there blessing people. I I think it's Santa Claus still. He's one of them. Yeah, he's my favorite Um, saint, Saint Nick. So when someone clicks share on social media, I think at a deep level, what it means is they've just seen something about themselves that they weren't aware of. Mm. And something that's very important to me in the work that I do, including the, the comedy work that I do is facilitating increased self-awareness. I think the purpose of our lives is to live our life. And I think a lot of us walk around and we are just a stranger to ourselves. We don't know who we are but we sit there and sit here and we think we know who we are and then we become convinced that we are who we think we are but i think who we are like the the true being inside dave the true being inside jp we're we're far more expansive than what we can comprehend so one of the reasons why i love facilitating increased self awareness even if it's just like a little reflection of self awareness like you watch a comedy video you see something about yourself that you didn't know was there and you like it you resonate with it so you hit share to me that self awareness helps us step deeper into be to truly living the miracle of who we are rather than treating ourselves like a stranger while we're just trying to be who we're expected to be, Mm -hmm. who we think we're supposed to be. I think life is too short to, uh, be someone other than ourself.
1: When you decide to share something on social media, that's not your, your own work. Mm -hmm. What thought process goes through your mind before you decide whether you're going to share something or not?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think a couple of things. One, did I receive benefit from this? Um, if I receive benefit from it, like that's a that's a great green check mark. Mm-hmm. Green, mean, green means go. Um, and I think the other thing is like, is this a message that's kind of congruent with my brand? Uh, so my brand, comedy as well as just sincerity are two yeah. components of my brand. I think the comedy is more well known. So if it's a congruent message, awesome. Uh, but just because something's like a great message and I receive benefit doesn't necessarily mean like I'm going to share it. Like someone might have like these amazing orthotics for your shoes. I'm like, wow, that's a beneficial message. But I'm probably not going to share that.
1: Orthotics aren't funny. Is that the deal?
3: Uh, not yet, as far as I know. I think you can
1: break through that that glass ceiling for orthotics. <laughs>
3: I can make orthotics funny that I'm really making, but I'd be curious if I'm allowed to turn that question back on you. What makes you share something on social media that's not I, your own content? I have
1: a, a, a kind of a, a religious thing, and I'm always working to share this with, uh, with the staff at Bulletproof and just with, with the team who support our mission, and and it's just the simple question: What's in it for you? And mm-hmm. I don't mean for you, our staff. I mean, what's in it for you, the audience? So my filter is, like, I read the thing, and then is it worth the time that I'm asking someone to invest by looking at it? Like, will it add more than it takes away? And I I did a a math equation a while back, and uh, it was a really hard one. It had, like, algebra and stuff in it. Uh, And (laughs) it was, what's the dwell time on the website when people read Bulletproof content? And then what's the around 50 million downloads on Bulletproof Radio? Uh, 50 million hours divided by the number of mm. waking hours is hundreds of human lifetimes.
3: Wow. That's, so,
1: that's... And you, by the way, are at a bigger number than I am, right, with 100 million YouTube things. I don't know if you look at your average listen time, but that means that if we're not adding value mm. with what we do, we're actually mass murderers.
3: Wow. And I, I, I like that. I that, believe that. That's gruesome, <laughs> but that's a powerful way of looking yeah, at it. Yeah,
1: and that is how I view it. So I'm not going to share something. If it takes away more than it gives yeah right and whether it's my share like something I wrote or whether it's something that someone else did so I I see all sorts of shit on Facebook and I'm like like no I'm not gonna share that even if it might be mirthful or or a little funny or whatever yeah uh, so that the people who come and follow uh, follow me on Facebook or on Instagram or wherever that they're like okay Uh, This was uh, this was valuable and then they become engaged and the engagement levels for Bulletproof people uh, are like the comments and likes and things like that are are very high as a ratio because they're like they're real followers versus like bots or something. Yeah. Uh, And and it's that just constant what's in it for you not what's in it for me. And a lot of times, I think that the unconscious sharing—we just kind of throw stuff up on Facebook. You're Like, what's in it for me? Like, what's this going to make me look like? Yeah. And for me, it's like, can will this serve you? Because if this serves you best, it's actually going to make me look good anyway. But sure. I honestly don't really care if it makes me look good. Um, I, I I get these people who are like, like this offended me. therefore, I'm going to unfollow. And the response, and I'd offer this to anyone who doesn't like this show. Same thing. The unfollow button is right here, and I draw a little arrow. I'm like, it's okay. Like, if this isn't serving you, I want you to stop listening. Yeah, go live your life. Don't detract <laughs> totally. from your life yeah. just to mindlessly listen mm-hmm. to that. Yeah, and don't hold me hostage by unliking me. Trust me, <laughs>
3: I won't notice. Like, like <laughs> well, that's so true. And I, I love your, I mean, that's a very caring view. Are you gonna just rob? minutes hours from people's life if so like wow that's taking life that's murdering like that, that, gets that your that's attention. internet marketing or am i adding to it <laughs> for sure you know there there's some facebook pages that i personally used to follow used mm-hmm. to being the keyword and these become the pages where you know they're they're just doing the constant like every single hour we're going to post something mm-hmm. they're playing that game nothing wrong with that but what they're posting is it adding or is it subtracting and unfortunately not all but some of them like detract so i'm really quick with the unfollow button yep
1: i am she was like show me less posts like this i've managed to get most politics out of my feed mm. and what pisses me off now is politics
3: like, is that a thing now i haven't it, noticed
1: it's like a religion but different okay. because people fight wars over both of them Mm. But I think the order of operations is different. I don't really know.
3: But I think with politics, they worship like more people than just the one guy or gal.
1: Yeah. Or I. guy. And
3: neither one of them has
1: anything to do with money.
3: I would... I would <laughs> nothing. It's just caring about human nature is at the heart of both of them. This just turned dark, didn't it? It <laughs> did. Uh, Dave, why do I have so many unfollows on my channel right now?
1: <laughs> no, it's... It's really kind of funny because I posted something about the FDA recently Mm -hmm. and it was basically one of Trump's picks for the FDA is actually a board member of one of the most aggressive anti-aging research institutes out there. I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever because if we get like a libertarian anti-aging radical dude running the FDA, maybe we'll be allowed to have access to therapies that they're already doing in China and Japan that are not even like on the radar here. And... Immediately, Ugh. people are like, oh, welcome to the Trump train. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, guys. The fact that I like some things a president does and I don't like some things a president does, yeah. it doesn't mean that I support the office. It doesn't mean I support a specific candidate or a specific president. I only care about what they do. Yeah. And I've actually never found a politician who does anything close to what they promise to do. They, they all do the opposite or whatever whatever's in their best interest For once, sure. once they bought your vote by lying to you. How's that for dark? Um, they're going to do whatever they're going to do, and and so once you, once I say something either pro or con, then the tribalism and and those religious behaviors come in, and here's the deal for people listening: like Dave, are you you're you're a lefty or you're a libertarian? I'm like, actually, here's the deal: you cannot take the the probably ten thousand different facets of things that that you believe would make the best system and conveniently separate them into two buckets and say this is my bucket. That's anti thinking. Wow. So, here's the deal. like think for yourself and and yes, there are, are times when I absolutely support a decision, and there are other times where absolutely don't for sure. And so, to try and simplify things into like there's only two sides, oh, for God's sake, like that's so boring
3: that would be like to me, that'd be like saying your body only has two cells. It's like, well, I think we're a little more complex than that, and that's yeah. part of what adds the three dimensionality to life and the psychological experience Mm -hmm. of our social environment politics being part of it and i'm routinely fascinated with politics and religion how and i'm going to say present company included with Mm -hmm. what i'm about to say just so you don't get too offended at me (laughs) get offended now you're now you're offended that i'm trying not to offend you jp you don't think i can handle it people
1: you've insulted everyone now including yourself
3: (laughs) i hate myself right now dave (laughs) a biohack for that we do so I, i am absolutely fascinated by the emotional nature of humankind and how our emotions can completely override our prefrontal cortex so we can have a very intelligent person in a discussion and the the name trump is brought up like you just said and all of a sudden the front the prefrontal cortex is completely shut down and there's just this emotional reactivity there's no logical rational thought happening it's just an emotional outpouring which is fine i think our we need to feel our emotions i think if you try to suppress them it just it, it progressively kills mm-hmm. us but when we when we don't know we're in a state of reactivity and we're trying to like solve our emotional reactive issues in a logical discussion about politics like I think most discussions about politics aren't about politics. They're two very wounded inner children inside just getting angry because they're really afraid inside.
1: Uh, That matches my reality. In fact, in in Headstrong, and and yes, I do see that, I just conveniently worked a plug for my new book in there there because the reason I brought up Headstrong is exactly because it's relevant uh, to what you're saying here. There's these three behaviors that I I've, I wrote about in the Bulletproof Diet, I call them the Labrador Brain, but in Headstrong, it actually goes deeper than that. And the three behaviors are what every life form has to do, and, and it works for mammals, but it turns out it also works for bacteria, and your mitochondria are bacteria. And these are three things you'd be very, very familiar with and comfortable with. Um, the Labrador Brain it, it requires you to eat everything so that so you don't starve to death, because mm-hmm. then the species can't reproduce, okay? And then the one that we're talking about right here, which is run away from or kill Mm. everything that might be a threat.
3: Wow. Right.
1: And So this is why dogs bark at random crap. Like it's it's just an inborn behavior. And this is the algorithm for anything to stay alive, including a plant. They can't Mm. run away from, so they grow spines to kill you or they grow poisons to kill you, so you won't eat them, right? Uh, Because otherwise the species can't reproduce. And the final thing involved in reproducing the species is the Labrador goes, oh look, a leg, I'll go hump it. So there's the actual act of reproduction. And so I'm, I'm just trying to figure out, is there anything in your life you've ever done that you're ashamed of that didn't come from one of those three behaviors?
3: That's a great question. It, I would guess it'd probably be hard to find something outside of those behaviors.
1: Right. Uh, and all of the emotions we're talking about in, in political discourse, in, in religious disagreements, uh, you know, even pro-sporting, like, that's not my team, mm-hmm. you know, and just those deep emotions... Those emotions come from the lowest level bacteria that are running our bodies, which are mitochondria.
3: <laughs> Welcome to the club of thinking like a low-level bacteria. <laughs> so what that means to me, like, to me that sounds like all, like, self-preservation. Like, if you are different than me, yeah. psychologically, something's different than me. Yeah. I, I see it as a threat, so I want to kill it, you know, fight it or flight it. In and to me like that yeah that's a very self-preservation mentality but I and I think self-preservation's geared around creating more quantity of life mm-hmm. live longer don't die but to me self-realization is what gives us quality of life and I think self-realization mm-hmm. isn't about kill what's different from me I think self-realization is understand what's different from me cuz I get to expand Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like hanging out with only like-minded people. I don't grow. I don't get yeah. challenged. I love hanging out with like-hearted people, but preferably like-hearted people. So there's a acceptance-based relationship. Like, it's mm-hmm. a safe space. But like-hearted people who are also, at least at times, different-minded, not just like-minded. Mm-hmm. I think when everybody agrees with each other, it's like, okay, I feel more sense of certainty. I feel safer but i'm not growing i'm not getting challenged
1: well, that, that sense of safety there like from a mitochondrial nervous system ego perspective like that's you know okay great no no that's all safe and if you look at what these bacteria did when they colonized our cells and essentially took over like oh look a mobile petri dish that's the coolest thing ever well mm. let's just move right in and take over and we'll decide when when a cell dies when a cell replicates and we'll decide how much energy the cell gets. And, and like that's what they're doing. So when you allow them to be in charge, and it's like letting the phone in your battery deter- determine or sorry, letting the battery in your phone determine what your phone's gonna do, like that's the wrong way to do it. You should be in charge. Yeah. So they're like, okay, now I organized all these cells full of of me, these little bacteria, which which are in almost every cell in your body. So now you're basically a walking biofilm with lots of complex systems in it. And they're like, okay, you need to hook up with other biofilms like me for mm. defense, right? Which is why you would surround yourself by like-minded people who are are the same as you because you basically filmed a distribu- you formed a, a distributed biofilm now and then you'll reproduce with some of those people and there you go, now you've got a tribe, yeah. right? And then if you see someone who's different, you're like that's a threat, that's not a tribe. But those things are coming from the very lowest level emergent behaviors in a really complex mm. system. And when you realize that, When you say a like-hearted person, uh, my view on all this is that, okay, these these scared little stupid bacteria, none of which has much intelligence, but when you put a quadrillion of them together and they keep doing these behaviors, civilization emerges, right? It's kind of cool. The self-awareness component of that is that, okay, now I see that I have these behaviors, and rather than letting these behaviors happen... I'm going to either reprogram the behavior so the mitochondria chill the hell out, which yeah. is what meditation does, or I'm going to take more control, which I'm going to use my willpower, my energy to rationally catch myself in the act of you know, flipping the guy off in traffic and going, actually, like, I believe my own story, that he cut me off because he thinks he's better than me, <laughs> and I replaced it with he cut me off because his wife is pregnant in the back of the car and they're going to the hospital. Yeah. You don't know. right? So like, make up a story that makes you happy. For right? Sure. It just doesn't, it doesn't matter. The story I usually make up is that he robbed a bank but the bank had bad money in it, so he's getting away, and that's really good. No, I'm kidding. I don't make that up. But <laughs> the bottom line is it doesn't really matter. Like, it's all a story, and none yeah. of it has any bearing on reality. But but the like-hearted thing you're saying, I think, is when you, you go beyond the survival emergent bacterial consciousness that we identify as our own behaviors, which they really aren't. Those are like low-level operating system things.
3: That we carry, but they're not us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to me, a biohack, and when I'm around you, I call everything a biohack. (laughs) But to me, truly, it is a biohack. When there's something we disagree with, the biohack is seek to understand it. Not disagree with what we disagree with, just creating more resistance, more division, Mm -hmm. but understand that which we disagree with. Not for the sake of coming to terms of making ourselves agree or disagree, but aiming for the space in between Which, in my opinion, is just understanding. And to me, that's tolerance. That's, oh, you're different than me. Let me understand you. And now we have peace between you and I Mm -hmm. at the micro level. And I think even like parts of our own ego, parts of our own personality disagree with each other at times. And I think if we can find that sense of like understanding and uh, rather than just disagreement and self conflict, man. Uh, the inner world becomes a little bit more of a graceful place to live in.
1: Well, the inner conflict is where most of us spend uh, enormous amounts of energy. And, and the no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. the uh, The inner equation that I worked out, and I certainly had lots of voices in my head for a long time, is that the more voices in your head, the more energy it takes to create the voices and then to manage the voices. Right? So it becomes overwhelming. And when you can resolve an inner conflict, it frees up the energy that was creating the conflict. And when I say frees up energy, I mean literally like electrons in your head for thinking or yeah, willing. Sure. Uh, but then also the amount of management of, of rational thinking about this conflict goes down. You're like, wow, like I feel freer, but what you actually feel is more energy, which equals I freedom.
3: That. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think a lot of us, we're we we do not give ourselves permission to actually be conflicted instead we have conflict about our conflict so this sort of like natural conflict i think we inherently don't allow that to just be in the sense of like oh you know i do i disagree mm-hmm. with you or these two parts of me disagree with each other and that's okay all of a sudden <laughs> you know if we can do that like that's okay kind of thing our conflict creates a sense of peace and connection inside of ourselves. So it's a bit of a paradox, and I think it's a beautiful thing. Just like nutrition comes from compost. You know, the raw <laughs> sewage creates something that gives you life. Like tofu? Like to, tofu, tofurky, and I like the big game, uh, tofanimals, like tofiger, tofuna, tofelephants. It just... I love big game hunting. The to- the tofu animals are also easier to kill, in my opinion, as well. They don't run very fast. No, no, they they are they are very to-, to slow. But anyway, but I think when we have this mentality inside of ourselves and in our outer relationships that it's not okay to be conflicted, it's not okay to disagree, mm-hmm. we're conflicted about our conflict, and that's where we just really get hung up. But when we can say, oh. We disagree about this, and that's okay. I don't yeah. need to change your mind. You don't need to change mine. But maybe we can have understanding. And of course, there it is on the inner world as well. And man, how much? Just like you said, how much more energy do we reclaim when we're not just fighting our conflict all the time? It's massive.
1: Well, there, there's another side to that too, which is that if I don't have an explanation for that, I'm not safe, and mm. and that's like the source of science trolls. Like, like, there's no rational explanation for that happening. Therefore, it didn't happen. <laughs> like, sorry, show me a rational explanation for love, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's, I don't know that love love exists at this point. Right. There, there's, there's that point. You know, yeah. it doesn't exist. Uh, but the the point that that I'm trying to make here is that people will oftentimes reject. That they'll literally tell themselves something that clearly happened didn't happen yeah. uh, because there, it would require a, a change in thinking, which creates uh, a sense of, of lack of safety, which goes right back to those bacteria saying, you know, run away from things that are scary if, if, if I sure. was wrong about my beliefs about the way, you know, biology works or whatever else. Therefore, it's not going to work so they become they they come in you know, essentially with guns blazing like you're an idiot. Here's a study that proves you're an idiot because it For disagrees sure. with what you said. That's all fear, like like you were saying earlier. And the the question is whether people are able to simultaneously say this is the hypothesis that I'm going with right now, which is that things work this way. This may violate the hypothesis. It may not. It may be a bad data point. It may be a whole new exploration. Whatever of those it is, it's cool. Yeah. And if someone else thinks it's something different, let them do the research. But you see these crazy people out there, like, let's ban research on this because it's already been proven not to work. And you're like, but actually, that's not how science works. You don't ban research yeah. on stuff that you think doesn't work because then you don't learn. Like we just learned. Oh. It turns out the immune system does connect to the brain. We just didn't mm. see it because it was running next to a blood vessel all this time. Mm. So if we had banned research on that because we knew how it worked, like holy crap! Like yeah. I, I, I kind of get stuck on that.
3: Yeah, and for me, that whole fear-based mentality—I it, it, I think it becomes human nature or bacterial nature within mm-hmm. the human to become addicted to the familiar yeah. and to fight things that threaten my construct of what is familiar. But to me, I mean, where our our exhilaration mm-hmm. is in life, it's not in the familiar familiarity of our comfort zone of what's familiar. That's where we have this sense of safety. I don't even know if it's safe, but it's where mm-hmm. we have a sense of safety. But man, the exhilaration is when we're in the mystery, when we're walking through the proverbial dark forest, when we're stepping off the cliff, and we don't know exactly what we're gonna mm-hmm. land in, when we're gonna land, if we're gonna land. And
1: oh, you've been doing mushrooms again?
3: It, uh I'm doing the mushrooms that make me hallucinate that I'm not doing mushrooms. So at this point, I'm confused. So, in my opinion, an ingredient for a great life Mm -hmm. is we have to be willing to scare ourselves to death in order to actually live, not survive, but live. And I think when we're not willing to scare ourselves to Mm -hmm. death, what that means is I'm going to sit in this coffin of my comfort zone, stay with what's familiar, I'll repeat the same patterns of my relationships same repetitive patterns of my health, same repetitive patterns of my thinking about who I am and what the world around me is. But uh, if we can break out of that coffin and actually embrace the mystery, embrace the unknown, embrace what we fear the most. I think it was last week, he posted this awesome video to uh, Facebook, the people on the high dive. Oh, that was so cool. It was so amazing. You, you, it, you guys, you gotta go check out this video on Dave's Facebook page. Scroll through it; you'll find it. But the it was like a fifteen minute long video, and I don't even think you have to watch the whole thing. But people on the edge of this—it's
1: like a ten meter high dive.
3: Yeah, ten meter high dive, and you watch these people struggle. Some of them just wouldn't jump. Others mm-hmm. were up there for a few minutes, and then they finally did. And man, is that a a metaphoric representation of? How we are relating to our comfort zone and resisting the mystery all the time. But if we can break through the membrane of our comfort, the coffin of our comfort zone into the mystery, man, the free fall, that's where life is at, in my opinion.
1: There's a struggle that was, the reason I like that video is you can see the struggle on their face and in their body movements and the the meat operating system, the the mitochondria. (laughs) They're like, do not jump, end of species. If you, if you, go down that that far we know as dumb little bacteria that you'll probably die and the rational brain's like i know i'm not going to die but it's the struggle of the rational brain deciding to take ownership of the primitive in order to cause you to jump over and and when i watched this video the reason i actually posted it was you see like these these grown men are like i i can't do it and then you see this maybe i'm guessing she was 17 year old girl she looks at the edge and and she looks down and you tell it scares the shit out of her and, and, and she takes, like, three steps back. She goes, all right, let's do this. <laughs> Bam, she just jumps. And she was like, she had the most balls of anyone who went up yeah. there. And it was just so cool to see that,
3: right? For sure. Yeah, yeah that, that video is very inspiring. Mm-hmm. I think inspiring in two ways. Like, one, seeing a, yeah. a girl like that. And two, inspiring, like, having the the reflexive, just reactive seizing up an addiction to comfort so it's inspiring to see that be like yep i have that too so Mm -hmm. i want to recognize how that plays out in my life so i won't be a bacterial or i won't be a slave to that bacterial just master
1: i i've come to the point headstrong is about how do you hack the the bacteria so you have or the mitochondria which were bacteria so that you have more energy every day Mm -hmm. which lets you have more energy to manage them better and then how do you change the environment so that like you get a battery upgrade but the the end result of all this research is, is I just believe that our ego itself is an emergent phenomena of mitochondria. Hmm. And, and that it's, it, it, my career in tech has been managing complex systems and correlating events. And you don't mean to create like huge spikes in the internet when you just change one little bit here, but... You make a a quadrillion or a Googleplex of decisions using these tiny little rules, and you get these incredibly complex, beautiful Mm -hmm. patterns that no one would predict. Uh, Stephen Wolfram uh, invented whole new fields of mathematics around information uh, theory, information fields, and he's like, you want to understand how we make almost anything in nature? It's like, you take these tiny little rule sets, like like dumb little rules, and just do them a kabillion times, to use a technical term, and, and you get a flower. And you get like almost everything you'd expect. So the, the most complex, beautiful things are not that complex. They're emergent from tiny rules. And I believe that a lot of our egoic behaviors, the ones that we're most ashamed of, are, are emergent from these tiny little things that are constantly sensing the environment and judging what's gonna keep this this petri dish alive the longest. Yeah. Even though, quite often, what they're telling you to do is totally not in your best interest. And that the act of becoming self-aware is learning how to feel when that happens, and then deciding whether to use the information from the feeling or whether to become the feeling and then act without conscious thought yeah. and, and that for me has been a really big skill, and one i wouldn't really be very good at without having stuck computers to my head like to have a lie detector to see when i 'm lying to myself, because you know, my, my powers of self-deception are legion, I <laughs> oh, so else.
3: me too. For sure. And I love what you're saying. To me, that's like such a, a great way to articulate like an upgraded consciousness. Yeah. Like being conscious over the unconscious, reactive self-preservation, mitochondria and bacteria inside of us. That's I think that's amazing.
1: Well, will you, in your book... Uh, how to be ultra spiritual uh, which is uh, uh, something that we're we're here to talk about Uh, in addition to all the other stuff you're doing which is uh, just keeps making me laugh you talk about vulnerability when you're taking off your your comedian hat but i suppose when you're acting as a comedian too you have uh, or we all have this idea of of self-sabotage like Mm -hmm. where you do things that that get in your own way So I want to know, what do you do to self-sabotage? And then what's your take as a holistic, trained sort of of coach uh, about self-sabotage? Just walk me through your thinking about that.
3: Yeah, you know, sometimes the worst form of self-sabotage I do is not recognizing the self-sabotage that I'm acting out. So that's probably the worst thing I do. So recursive
1: self-sabotage, you're you're saying?
3: Recursive, like uh, Like, as opposed to printing
1: So you're, so you're, you're like, saying self-sabotage of your own self-sabotage? Self, or blindness of self-sabotage? Yeah, blindness of okay.
3: self-sabotage. So to me, it's kind of like the idea you, you can't get out of a prison that you don't know you're in. So if you're self-sabotaging... Like, like Facebook. Yeah, so we, but we know we're in Facebook. <laughs> um, but i got to check Facebook real quick. Do you mind if we pause I, this for I, I 20 actually, or 30 I, minutes? I
1: should do the same thing, too. I, we'll, we'll just uh,
3: But aspects of my self-sabotage that are common, overworking. Mm-hmm. I, I find a lot of purpose, playfulness in my work, and there is a part of me that overworks for the sense of chasing, a sense of um, value that isn't going to be found through work. So, uh, yeah, I, I can really deplete myself burning the candles, uh, candle at both ends. And to me, self-sabotage is typically a symptom. So whether we're self-sabotaging psychologically So it's like reoccurring patterns of depression, sadness, anger, disconnection, or we're acting out behaviors of self-sabotage, overworking, eating foods we shouldn't, uh, hanging around people that don't serve us. To me, self-sabotage is always a symptom. And from my delusional perspective, it's a symptom of unresolved emotional pain and or disempowering beliefs of ourselves. So I think our self-sabotage... It's an expression that validates a disempowering belief of self or a a pain of self.
1: That's pretty deep. And what? so for you, you're saying you basically burn yourself out when you're self-sabotaging. Yeah. Okay. For people listening... Do you have a, a tool you recommend or or some way for them to identify their self-sabotaging patterns, the ones they're not aware
3: of? Well, there's a line of a question and a simple question that I love to ask people is, okay, what do you do? So recognize your self-sabotage. That's question number one. Question number two, which I think is so so much more important than what you do, but is why do you do what you do? If you pretend that whatever your sabotage is, there is a part of you that has a damn good reason why it acts out the self-destruction. I mean, we, 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 sometimes we make up the story like, oh, I'm doing this thing and it doesn't serve me. Well, well I, I think we're intelligent people. We wouldn't be self-destructing if it didn't serve us in some way. By serve us, meaning it kind of like compensates. So what do you do and then get curious? Why do I do this? And question number three is, how does part of me benefit by doing this? So, okay, I might say like I've been in a relationship that's just we're always fighting and it, it's just obvious. This relationship died three years ago. Okay, so that's myself that reoccurring patterns of relationship dysfunction. Why do I do this? Uh, I don't. Is this replicating a sense of familiarity from my childhood? Do I feel like I'm just perpetually not good enough for her? And then the third question, like, how do I benefit from that? Do I find a sense of comfort in the discomfort of the incessant conflict, for example? So for me, a curious mindset is very important to get to the story under the story of our self-sabotage, get beyond the symptoms to kind of like the root in our heart of why we do what we do.
1: So I've looked at, at my own thing, and certainly you know, burning... Burning myself out of something that I've I've been a professional at uh, for a long time, and that's one way to avoid like dealing with feelings is like I have to work more, <laughs> like uh, just just one more email, I'll be fine, and, yeah. and then you collapse, and then you rinse and repeat, and, and uh, oftentimes, at least when I was really motivated in my twenties, um, by it was more like fear of failure than anything else. But like mm. I made six million dollars, when I was twenty six. Like that's a pretty good motivation. Yeah. If you if you equate failure with death instead of learning uh you're you're going to go down that path so I, I suddenly would do that and i came across a tool um called the enneagram have you ever
3: looked at that uh, yes i have i don't know much about it i've got a book on it i haven't read it and i've yeah. had other people do but i'd love to hear how that's worked for you i don't know much about it at all
1: so i, I can tell you that i don't remember my enneagram number <laughs> which
3: means doesn't mean that my intuition tells me you're a six
1: uh Sure, I don't even <laughs> remember what the numbers are. Uh, but when I read the book and did the, the test for the Enneagram, it was really insightful. It was the only kind of Myers-Briggs-style scoring system that had like the psycho-spiritual component. But what it said is it said, here's how you manifest when you're doing things in the good place for you, mm-hmm. and here's how you can tell that you're starting to, like here's your self-sabotage patterns. And it actually would tell you Step one, step two, step three, step four, with shocking precision.
3: Oh, is that right?
1: So it's E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, for people who are listening. And I'm not trained in the thing. I read the book. I did a workshop with it a long, long time ago. And I just remember thinking, this is like the most complete. So if you're looking for self-sabotage, like why do I do that? I can tell you, self-sabotage is a major issue for almost everyone, and it's going to be invisible because what you'll do is you'll say i'm i'm doing it for a reason which is a story that you made up Mm -hmm. uh, or you'll say it's someone else's fault like they're making me do it and so that's that inner awareness thing which can only be uh, only really be released by reading how to be ultra spiritual by jp sears i worked that plug in seamlessly for you didn't i
3: yeah it it was graceful i think you redefined Race. In fact, I think I can hear classical music playing right now, even though it's not playing.
1: You know we're going to cut some in so it's actually playing later.
3: Oh, very cool. So, you're and, to, you're Who's the fool here? Huh? Uh, and and <laughs> please cut this part out where we're talking about we're going to cut it in just so people... It's, it's
1: called the third wall. We're not supposed to violate people. the third wall, but violating third walls is part of your kitsch, isn't it?
3: i don't know what it means but the answer is definitely yes
1: i think they call it might be the fourth wall i get my numbers wrong but there's some sort of wall between you guys like watching and listening and I, i'm not really a tv guy but i heard someone say it once and it made me feel smart
3: <laughs> <laughs> then it's true if it made you feel smart you're,
1: your weird dry humor is rubbing off on me and it makes me feel dirty oh if you're, you're
3: welcome i appreciate that compliment <laughs> it's, it's the thing anybody's ever said to me
1: speaking of compliments I do have a copy of your book, pre-release copy of the book. Mm. And I turned over the book to the back of the book because what I found is that if you look at the cool picture on the front with the flower in your hair and you look at the back of the book, you can actually say that you've read the entire book. Because you just pretend like you didn't have to open it. Okay. I've actually read it, read the book. And the back of it though had an interesting quote from a guy I've heard of. Uh, loaded with laugh out loud humor, an intelligent exploration of the spiritual delusions many fall prey to. Enjoy JP's perceptive underlying insights while you laugh beyond all understanding. From Tony Robbins. Mm, That's pretty high praise. Like, Tony gets asked to say stuff about books like every five seconds of his life, I imagine, and doesn't really respond to those emails. I would also imagine. I've I've never asked him to say anything about mine, but he he once said something nice about Brain Octane. I was like, holy shit, Tony, that's amazing. But you had some other people in here that I wanted to quote, because I, I thought some of these were almost as impressive. They're like, all
3: high-vide people, yeah.
1: Combines the wisdom of bearded Jesus with the playfulness of baby Jesus. And that was a quote from, it says here, the Holy Mother of God. Yeah. Wow. That, it,
3: that's a that's a powerful endorsement. It, it almost rivals Tony's endorsement, but it, that's powerful in it. Uh, so.
1: Funnier than the law of karma, the universe. I, I mean, this is high praise for a book. Uh, it, it, is. it it really is a a, a cool perspective. like it, it is a funny book, and the idea that you're working this stuff in, where people can pay attention to their weaknesses, they can look at what's going on, but through the lens of humor, it's actually a hard achievement to do. And you pulled it, it off. Which is cool.
3: Well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. Uh, I uh, to me, humor, it's a language. And I think it's a language that uh, we tend to have our minds defenses surrendered when we're talking about humor like if i start talking you and i are talking mm-hmm. in the series yeah we're gonna get you know a little bit resistant and especially if you start sharing new perspectives with me like we were talking about earlier like oh that's different well, let me resist that but there's something about the energy of humor there's like a non-threatening energy so i find that the human psyche tends to be relatively less defended when we're talking in the language of humor so if we embed deeper messages and humor which from my bias perspective, I do my best to do that in my book and my videos, then it's like we can bring the messages messages into our psyche. They can penetrate deeper and we can consider them because we've been undefended. We haven't rejected them before we've even considered them like we might do with new ideas, new perspectives that are essentially told to us through the language of seriousness. So I I know humor is not the only language, but it, to me, it's a very powerful language, underused language, and,
1: and it maybe makes people feel safer about facing some of these. I remember when I I was first getting into the the personal development side of things. I'd, I'd done a little bit of like performance oriented neurofeedback, but I hadn't done any EMDR, I hadn't done heart rate variability, and I, I was basically in this place where like, yeah, I'm pretty angry most of the time, but like any other emotion, like like there's no other emotion, like <laughs> f all that, right? Uh, and I I went. And I, I did a lot of personal just like personal exploration around those things. And it took, I, I wouldn't look at, at anything other than through a rational lens. And, and a lot of people who are actually suffering the most have learned that if you just make everything go through the slowest part of the brain, which is the thinking part, uh, even though it takes a lot of energy to do that, then everything works. And then you just kind of ignore everything underneath that. Uh, and this is metabolically expensive it will cost you Mm. uh, but it's it's an invisible cost and it it burns a lot of energy in a way that isn't making you stronger (laughs) it just just wastes it Uh, and it's energy that you really could use just to like watch breaking bad reruns over and over it's just like free energy that's just sitting there Uh, and and for me it was it was definitely anger but behind anger there's always fear but i would i was really not open to hearing any of that crap. Yeah. But when you look at it through humor, all of the defensiveness goes away cuz like who can be defensive around like like the right kind of humor anyway. So that that's sure. that's a cool way to maybe make people face things. And one of the people i would first started working with said, "Oh, you need to read this book called It was like Heal the Shame that Binds You Oh by John Bradshaw. love the book. Famous book, right? And uh, uh, but I was like, I don't have any shame. Screw you guys. <laughs> Toss the book to the side. Like, what kind of a weakling would have shame? Like, exactly. I got nothing to be ashamed of. You know how successful I am,
3: right? Shame it, is for small children, it, but not real men. <laughs> exactly. Damn it. <laughs> totally. And I remember that. And in fact,
1: I still never read that damn book. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, it it was one of those things where that wasn't accessible to me. Yeah. Because I was I was very cognitive, and it's not that you stop thinking for yourself. I got to the point, and I'm still at that point where. I have, I have an engineering brain, you know, studied a, a subset of artificial intelligence uh, and computer science and all that. There's a completely rational part of the world and part of my inner world, and there's also a completely irrational part of it. Yeah. And the inner conflict that comes from those, I don't have it anymore. Because I'm like, look, there's these stupid bacteria, that this operating system level of the body, that's irrational. Like It's an animal. It, does, it doesn't follow logic. It doesn't have context. And at the same time, there's a rational side of me, uh, which I like to identify with more. But the fact of the matter is, there may be a complete gap between those things, and it doesn't matter.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. So I can do things that make my animal happy that make no sense. Yes, I'll sit in a drumming circle. Look like, what that. There's no like double-blind studies and rational reason that you should do almost all the things that you like to do. Yeah. Uh, so that that was my my perspective on uh, just on, on maybe why humor works because it it, it can let you. Uh, Get past that that resistance to looking at yourself.
3: Yeah, and part of what I heard you say is humor can be a bridge. It bridges the. I mean the. It can be a massive canyon. The eighteen inches between our head and our heart can sometimes be just like ten thousand miles of distance, essentially. So I heard you say like humor can be that bridge, and and something my delusional perspective Mm -hmm. about you is you're a very (laughs) intelligent guy. Maybe that's not so delusional. I think you could crush Forrest Gump in an IQ competition. I'd work hard. And I think for a lot of like high cognitive functioning people, there might be a couple things that happens. One, I just wonder like, did they de- did you develop your high caliber cognitive function essentially as a compensation to escape the the pain in your heart? And, or maybe that was just there and it was going to be there all along, but it becomes an easy escape mechanism. And to me, so I just get curious about that. I don't know if any of it's true, but to me, the most beautiful thing is you have taken painstaking efforts to bridge that gap. I mean, I would imagine you could just be in your head all day. Life would seem pretty good, but there's something that's called you to the adventure of your heart and you've bridged the gap. It's beautiful. Oh, thank thank you. I might.
1: I don't know how other people feel if they live all in their head, but I I, I think that there's usually a, a kind of a background screaming going on that you're like living your head to avoid. Yeah. Uh, that that you'll eventually be called to pay attention to, otherwise you'll sort of be
3: miserable. Yeah. Uh, and, and on that note about how other people might feel who live in their head, to me one of the potential feelings because I've spent so much time in my head in my life. The worst feeling is the feeling of not feeling feelings, numbness. To me, it's the most tormenting sensation. So when we're walking around numb, it is, it's like we see life, we know life is going on, but we're not experiencing life. I think our emotions are inside of us for a reason to give us the three-dimensional experience of life rather than just knowing about life.
1: Well, numbness is a, a perception, uh, unless you actually have a severed nerve, so what's going on is is the mitochondria that sense the world around us on a you know, microsecond by microsecond mm. basis. They're still taking all that in, right? And then they communicated at the cell level, and some of those cells communicated at the nerve level, and then like all this environmental stuff changes in the body, and you're capable of sensing all those. So what the numbness is is actually a full-on disconnect. So you, your sensation of numbness is that either you intentionally cut off, or you mm. uh, you you decided on some subconscious level to, you're, that that is noise, yeah. not signal, and that you're just not going to listen to it. But So you,
3: it's there, you're just not paying attention. Yeah, uh,
1: and people who are more like on the, the autism ADD side of things, the signal-to-noise ratio isn't where you where mm-hmm. you want it to be, so they already have a hard time figuring out what the signal is from their nervous system versus just, you know random whatevers yeah. and so they're like just toss all that crap like it's just it's too much work i don't want to deal with it
0: mm.
1: and the idea is if something feels like too much work well what if you had like something that was capable of putting out a lot more power then the, it wouldn't feel like too much work and that's why like headstrong the whole thing of hacking your mitochondria is like what if they just made more energy Then what felt like a lot of work wouldn't be a lot of work it's just yeah. the fundamental laziness but it applies even to something like like you know being aware of of where your numbness comes from mm. See, I didn't think we'd go quite this deep. This is kind of cool. I want to know though. So you, you've got hundred million YouTube views. You have your your ultra spiritual book. You have your actually your freaking hilarious T-shirts, spiritual as hell, and all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you you're a creative guy, and I, I've seen you on stage and and a couple different times. So there's a creative process, and, and mm-hmm. I've had a chance. I haven't done it on film before or on on Bulletproof Radio, but. I've I've asked like Stephen Jenkins from Third Eye Blind like what do you do to prepare for a concert before you go on stage so I, he promised he'd come on one of these days um and uh, and talk about that so I'll I'll get that on air at some point but I would like to know like what do like really successful performers do in order to make your material so yeah. what's your process to get into you know JP Sears with a flower in your hair
3: yeah you know there I think there's a few different phases of the creative process like i would say like the most raw of the creative process is coming up with the video ideas and um uh, and then developing a script or writing the book but how do
1: you come up with an idea like the creative process is hard so
3: that like bringing in the raw materials that process is seemingly random like the the creativity comes to me when i'm not trying to be creative oh so like if i'm just like airplanes for me are a big source of creativity or a big it's a time when a lot of creativity happens and i don't know why it might have something to do with like i'm somewhat uncomfortable but just ideas flood to me when i'm on airplanes you you want to know why yeah let's hear it
1: so at least in, in the model that, that I use at, at Forty Years of Zen and in my own life, the the fount of creation is state of state. That's where you go for, for dreaming. Mm. So intuition and creativity sit there. And most of the time when you have a dream, you don't remember it. Right. right? So so there's actually like software that uh, that I use called Neurominer that trains you to remember what happens in that state. Mm. But when you go on an airplane, you've got Relatively poor quality lighting, but you've also got white noise, right? Like all that that stuff going on and you are relatively uncomfortable You're so uncomfortable that you can't go to sleep very easily, right? so what's happening is you've got white noise and Essentially a background annoyingness that helps your body drop into a theta state and you're uncomfortable enough that you don't fall asleep where you won't get all the value from it. So it pops you into that mode
3: fascinating so Yay. And luckily I'm on airplanes enough that I get to take advantage of that. Okay. And then, so that's where the raw materials come from. And then the next part of my creative process is like taking those, like the big idea and filling in the, the microcosm, if you okay. will, of that idea. And for me, I, I dedicate the first one hour of my day after my morning routine. And I'm uh, woken up at the first hour of my workday is developed or devoted to writing. So, scripting. Like the artist's way, kind of just like getting out of your head writing or? Well, uh, no, it would be like making a video script, writing the book, uh, but something that I'm really applying my creativity to a project that's got material to it. So,
1: I find it kind of irritating. like Naveen Jain when he was on, uh, uh, who, by the way, Naveen Jain is uh, founder of InfoSpace and the guy who's behind Moon Express and Mm. the new company called Viome. And uh, he just invested in Bulletproof this week, which is kind right of cool. on. So, well, this week when we're not recording, but anyway. I, I, so now I have like this cool billionaire investor guy uh, on board, which is awesome. Joined our advisory board. So Naveen, when I interviewed him, I'm like, "What's what are your morning habits?" And he goes, "Why the heck would you want to know my morning habits? Like something." And I'm quote misquoting him, but he's like, "Only a loser would want to would want to follow someone else's morning habits." You know why people do the habits? Like it's the thinking that matters. Yeah. Right. So I, I kind of want to ask you about your morning habits, but I also don't want people to like think I'll be just like JP Sears if I just follow his habits because sure. your habits work for you, but your habits might not work for them. Yeah. That said. <laughs> what are your habits? No. But so you said you, your first hour, but you don't like wake up in bed and write, do you?
3: No, or- no, I don't. Um so first thing I do is I take a cold shower. Uh, that rule, well, so stimulating. Hot,
1: then cold or just cold? Just cold.
3: Wow. And then um yeah, hardcore uh Viking. Yeah, brother. And then from there, I, I do some gratitude journaling. So I write down, actually, this is a routine, a dimension of the routine I got from Tony Robbins. Three things I'm grateful yeah. for, but to bring it just from my head and integrate it to my heart, feel the feelings the of, gratitude, of gratitude. For well sure. Said. And then I write down three, thing, three creative projects that I'm working on um, so to just energize what's important to me creatively. Then I take a 30 minute walk uh come back and make bulletproof coffee i'm not just saying that because i'm talking to dave i've been on bulletproof coffee i That's love awesome. it it brings me yeah getting into ketosis or close to it i don't measure my blood but
1: you don't need to if you use brain octane you're getting some ketones just by definition yeah
3: so i use a crap load of brain octane grass-fed butter like i'm telling you what's in bulletproof coffee <laughs> do you know about bulletproof coffee so i I do find it makes a a noticeable difference for my mental sharpness my brain energy and my physical energy like typically then i'm not eating like my first solid food until one in the afternoon at the earliest sometimes two um but yeah then i i take my coffee and i start my creative writing whatever the one hour of creativity is so
1: you take any other smart drugs let's uh no. And I'll give you some before you go. <laughs> okay. There's some that can help. I mean, it is is—it's
3: crystal meth, a smart drug.
1: No, it's okay. just an—it's just a stimulant. That we, but, we have uh, real but, smart drugs. But
3: no, no other smart <laughs> drugs. Uh,
1: I, if, if you're open to it, I will give you some. Uh, I don't mean like I, I make nootropics that are not drugs or some of the bulletproof stuff, but I mean like an actual pharmaceutical smart drug sort of thing that it is legal to give you because they're over the counter stuff.
3: Interesting. So those kind of scare me, yeah. and I'm not educated yeah. on them, but I'm curious, Like the, what would be the one you're thinking of?
1: Uh, aniracetam. So the, the ones in the racetam family are exceedingly safe, and they increase memory IO, at least that one does, and they don't have addictive things at all. They're not stimulants. Uh, the biggest side effect, they amplify caffeine a little bit. Hmm. And some of them, for some of them, they reduce uh, acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter, like they use more choline because your brain works faster. But they're essentially neuroprotective, like your, your chances of living longer when you take them are higher. So I've been on this stuff almost every day for nearly 20 years now.
3: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: And there's, there's different varieties of that family. But I'll, I'll, if you want to try some, I'll give you some. And I'd just say take it with your, uh, with your bulletproof in the morning uh, when you want to really create something amazing and just see what happens. But your your risks are relatively low on these, and these are things you know, anyone can order online. I don't I don't sell any of them, and I, I, don't, I can't tell you where the safest place to buy them is because Probably
3: Tijuana, Mexico is the safest place to buy anything.
1: I usually get a, a smoothie made out of them there. They just yes. put a few Viagra, a few antiracetams, blend it right up with some cactus.
3: Yes. <laughs> you can't. Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> I'd love to learn more about that. All
1: right, so. I'll, I'll, I'll get you some. Uh, some of the most creative people I know uh, they do get the boost from having exogenous ketones like brain octane and all that. But uh, nicotine can help too, mm. even if you're not a smoker. And I, I wrote a few blog posts about uh, how to use nicotine as a smart drug. Mm. And when you think about it, like almost every great work of of, of literary fiction was written with copious amounts of coffee. <laughs> nicotine and sometimes alcohol which is not a performance enhancer yeah. but, but there there is something about that so I uh, I'm a huge fan of of microdosing nicotine hmm uh, and I've never smoked I'd smoke is bad for you I would never smoke. Sure. but that one compound is, is better studied than caffeine like if you if I was to pick the most studied smart drug on the planet it's nicotine and maybe I'd pick modafinil, uh, which I took for like eight years, and also will blow your writing away. But it, it has—it's it, a bigger gun. Like that for, for you, that's probably too big. Uh, but well, are you saying I can't handle it, Dave? I'm just saying you don't want
3: to handle it. Okay. <laughs> thank you. I feel better about I, myself now. I
1: can't imagine like that calm, like like kind of calm centered voice on modafinil and some caffeine. You'd be like. It'd be more beavis and butthead and just less JP. It yeah. That'd be the right vibe for you.
3: Yeah, that changes my character, my personality. <laughs> like, you are someone different. Yeah. The
1: the one thing that a lot of people told me about modafinil, not nicotine, uh, is an instrument I felt as well. Your mind works so fast mm. that it's irritating because people are talking so slow. Is like, right? like, you know what they're going to say. If they could just finish saying it, then you could go on to what's next. And, and you actually have to manage that. It, it can be, especially the first couple of weeks, it can be almost like a sense of rage. Is that right? Because why is everyone around me so goddamn slow? And, and it's not like, I, I took Adderall for about a month. I had a prescription for it a long time ago just to try it. It was, it was a horrible drug for me. And I, I was taking, like, small doses and, like, please don't touch me. Um, it was not good. But uh, so it was, it's not ampu like that, but it's just like everything is fast and or mm. at least you're fast, but everything else is slow. And it's not a good feeling until you just get used to, to running at a high speed. Yeah. Uh, so that said, I did give, I didn't give, I was there when I, I explained how this worked to a guy doing a, a really long detailed proposal for the Dalai Lama. Another guy who's written uh, a, a very successful book about the global brain in fact, he was on the show. And I think he talked about this. Uh, I hope he did. Steve Almohundro. Sorry, Steve. I think I think you did talk about that in your blog. Uh, Steve's like a, a friend and an AI researcher. And uh, another person who's a, a clinical hypnotherapist. And, mm-hmm. and each of them uh, had uh, 100 milligrams of modafinil for the first time. I just told them like how the stuff worked. And they had their own doctor prescriptions and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then they all they came back a week later. And like, I just took that one dose. And the Dalai Lama guy's like, I finished the proposal I've been working on for weeks and weeks. I finished it all at once, and it's the best writing I've ever done. And they accepted my proposal. And Steve's like, two chapters of my book, like, like, and oh, like, fast. that's awesome. So for for creative stuff, I didn't, I haven't taken the stuff in in about four years because I I measured my brain after eight years of being on it. I my brain runs at that speed without it, nice. as long as I follow the bulletproof diet. Like, if I go out and eat inflammatory foods, I'm like back to my slow normal self but on university grade levels you can't do that. So if you're like writing your opus, I'd say go for the racetams, add in some modafinil, a little spray of nicotine and a double bulletproof coffee, but just don't go on stage the next day cuz you won't be yourself.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I might develop a new character.
1: But <laughs> mm. like, well, ang- angry JP
3: that's fascinating so that guy uh, got all ho- ho- hopped up on all that and then he did a marriage proposal to the dalai lama and the dalai lama said yes is that the moral of the story that i gathered it's the moral of the
1: story i'm a good listener he, after that he was one with everything
3: that was pretty good you gotta give me credit that for that did you hear this i digress do you hear the joke about the dalai lama ordering a hot dog <laughs>
1: I, I do know the punchline. Yeah,
3: <laughs> it's just going to be a terrible joke. I won't even say it. everybody, You've probably heard it. If you haven't, it's not really worth listening to. <laughs> Certainly by J- Dave and JP. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: all right, so so I interrupted you by suggesting an upgrade to your Bulletproof coffee there, which was terribly rude as, as the inquisitive questioner here. Oh,
3: yeah, and, I'm, and I'm offended.
1: I'm just trying to add some value to your otherwise valueless work. And oh, See, that, that kind of thing, it doesn't feel good. Today, so, cause see... The, I know you don't take that seriously, yeah. but it was, I don't like to say kind of things. Like, like, when I say that, I felt that.
3: But, and I love that you felt how it felt to you. Yeah. Was it sarcasm? Yes. Did it hurt me? No. But it hurt you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's so awesome you could feel that. Be like, oh, uh, coming from that angle, I don't want to do that again. Yeah, but it was still kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the funniest jokes are the ones where you have to tell other people that they're funny.
1: I got a message with ah. one eyebrow raise, and you kind of got that pretty well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. If you're watching this on YouTube, that was funny, because we were having a little eyebrow war there, but as it was on, on on your commute, you're like, these guys are kind of weird. All right, so we talked about your morning. You do the Tony Robbins inspired gratitude journaling. Yeah. Uh, you You use Bulletproof. You don't eat till 2, which is very similar to my morning, although I don't do the gratitude stuff in the morning. I have young children, so my gratitude practice involves... Put on your shoes, put on your shoes, put on your shoes, get in the car, and you just repeat everything five or six times, and eventually it happens, and then you're grateful that it happens. Yeah, it's
3: like a mantra that actually works. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: and then I come back and I like do biohacking stuff, so I'll do the gratitude stuff in the evening. Okay, so, so you do that, and you structure your writing so the first hour is essentially new scripts, like your most powerful writing is the first hour, and then you go into work mode after that. Yeah,
3: okay. yeah. so work mode. I mean, my writing is part of my work, but I it's like, ah, I don't even like to call it work. That's why I call it the creative time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, then I'll go into work, so it might be interviews that are scheduled, clients' meetings, uh, filming videos.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, when you're going to be either shooting a video or going live on stage, yeah. what do you do to get in the zone for that?
3: So, very different. Uh, so, with a a video like calm down just find my center breathing like meditation like I just need calm and slowness but when I'm going on stage in front of an audience it's just the opposite like I want to get hyped up and like I don't go on stage yelling and screaming you don't seem hyped up in front of an audience You're yeah character. but I but I like to just really raise my energy even though I don't project my voice loud and move around with a lot of uh, dynamic motion, but I just love to enter this stage being kind of like as high frequency as I can. Okay. And uh, also in a uh, part of my go on stage practice is remind myself, I am here to give. This isn't about me. I find when i when I try to make this about me, I want this to go good, so everybody's pleased, so I feel better about myself. That's when like I start to feel oh, a little anxiety, a little nervous. Like it just takes me off my center. But when I remind myself, I'm here to give. This is for for the audience. It just puts me in a, a much better state, similar to like what gratitude journaling mm-hmm. would uh, be. So it puts me in a giving frame of mind.
1: It's interesting. Being of service to others is one of the things that reliably gets some people into a flow state. Mm. Right? Some people have to be like in fear of death, falling down a mountain with a yeah. failing parachute or something to really get in the flow state. But for the rest of us who aren't going to get mortally wounded, it's a pretty reliable way to do it. So, so for you, just that mindset. Same thing. I don't have any stress on stage because I'm like I'm, I'm here to give. Yeah. But if I'm like I'm here to take, I, I might have anxiety. But I don't know. That I, I just that's just not what I do anymore. Mm. Um, so I, I hear you there. So so you get super hyped. You do some breathing before you go on stage, uh, and then you you just go on and and you deliver and.
3: Okay. Yeah, yeah. How I,
1: conscious are you while you're delivering? Are you like doing a memorized thing? Are you thinking about everything are you watch in the audience? Like, what do you do with your mind?
3: Yeah. So to uh, give you a couple answers, okay. if I'm going on stage to do comedy, I mean, typically, I'll my stage time, I'm either doing comedy or I'm giving a sincere discussion from my heart. When I'm doing Scott, uh, comedy, much like the nature of a lot of stand-up comedy, I do have it scripted. Like I've got my quote-unquote routine. But I like to be so solid on that that it's something to launch off of. So I love engaging with the audience, it, just improving, you know, when there's little uh, little interactions. Uh, to me that's just it's so beautiful. So being able to be present with people, essentially have the routine so ingrained in my nervous system that I don't have to think about it so I can be more present. And I just love that feel. And I think it gives a better product, if you will. And if I'm going on stage to deliver more of a sincere discussion of my heart whether it's about authenticity, healing, growth whatever it might be I like I'll know the topic that I'm going to talk about I'll probably know some key points or principles but I don't I like to be very unscripted I like to be very spontaneous and get into the flow state connecting with the audience so it can be a true communication not just a monologue. Even if I'm just the only one talking, a communication to me is different than a monologue. It's like I'm feeling, I'm receiving, I'm looking at the body language and sounding airy-fairy, but feeling the energy of the audience.
1: There's uh, Any effective presenter and any effective teacher in a live setting has, uh, has a, a sense of the feedback from the mm. room. And, and it's probably electromagnetic. Uh, because we know that your heart rate variability will change in response to those around you and theirs will change in response to yours Uh, and I I became a more effective speaker uh, when I learned to train my heart rate variability so I I have a higher amplitude heart rate variability and it's it's called coherent so it's non chaotic Mm. so people are like I don't know why but like it feels calmer And, and so the room will resonate with you if you do it right and I think you have to be in a flow state to do that as well.
3: Very cool.
1: And then when, when you're aware of that, if, if you say something that takes you out of the zone, it's because it probably took the audience out of the zone, and you're like kind of at one with them in, in yeah. some sense. Is that a description of what you're doing? I mean, at, you may not be doing heart rate variability exercises, but does, does that oh, sound the same? Is yeah,
3: 100%. About? Absolutely. It's just like if you're dancing, you're going to pay attention to your dance partner and the dance will go well. It'll be enjoyable. It'll be graceful. It'll be a beautiful artistic expression if you're paying attention to your dance partner. And to me being on stage, you have a dance partner. It's not a one-person thing. It's a collective consciousness of everybody that's Mm -hmm. in there. So man, I think half the talk is receiving what the dance partner is giving you.
1: Very well said. Wow, I've never thought about dancing with an audience, but maybe that's because your audience is more attractive than mine.
3: I actually have a very <laughs> attractive audience. Thank <laughs> you guys very much. That, that's, that, that so are better. you, Dave, let's get to the bottom of this. Are you saying your audience is ugly? You're, are you saying fans of Bulletproof Radio are unattractive?
1: I, I was implying that, but I didn't actually say it, but it was an alternative fact, so it was okay
3: you love donald trump conversation's over oh man now you've
1: polarized everyone
3: Mm. the problem is i don't know which poll i'm on Uh,
1: i'm I'm very confused now yeah i'm gonna do some self-sabotage right now
3: dave loves you guys he does (laughs) promise
1: on that note i can't think of a better way to end the show you guys should check out how to be ultra spiritual jp's new book And no, actually, JP didn't, like, pay me or trust my arm to say anything about his book. I'm actually just saying things because I always bring authors on who write good stuff because I'm assuming if you're willing to spend an hour of your time listening to Bulletproof Radio that you probably care about what's in your head. So I will suggest things you might put in your head. This is a good read and it's funny. And, hey, Tony Robbins agrees. So, I mean, who's going to argue with Tony Robbins? He's, like, ninety-nine feet tall or something. He's taller than me.
3: Don't argue with that guy. He'll, like, palm your face thank you for the beautiful words about the book brother i so appreciate
1: you uh, you're you're welcome i appreciate you coming up to the
3: labs and hanging out for a day and we've mm-hmm. we've
1: cryotherapyed you and done all sorts of other crazy stuff for you
3: yeah i had one of the i mean a hardcore workout in four minutes oh, that yeah. that is amazing that's so <laughs> i noticed you're looking like, a little bit uh, less weak than normal oh uh <laughs> dave i didn't even know that uh you would notice <laughs> ah, I'm getting tired. I mean, by the way, uh, you're looking less weak than normal, too. You're, you've got some girth on your arms, brother.
1: I've been doing uh, SARMs, Selective SARMs. Androgen Receptor Modifiers. I, I wrote a post about it, and I tried a, a stack of them a while back. It didn't seem that much, so I added another one, and I put on 19 pounds of muscle in a month. Wow. I did four workouts, so, I mean, that, that was...
3: Only best. four workouts over the course of a <laughs> was
1: month? was stupid. <laughs> yes. I wasn't trying to put on 19 pounds of muscle. Like, if you guys ever see me in, in person, like, I'm not a small dude. Sure. But, like, I, I'm, I'm you know, 6'4", and I'm already imposing enough. New York Times said I was almost muscular. I'm like, that's what makes you live a long time, is when you're almost muscular. Like, enough muscle mass, but not enough to, like, stress the heart. And, like, my shirt barely fits. Yeah. And I had to, like, buy a new suit. And I'm like, this sucks. Like, I don't want to be hulking out of my clothes. Uh, but it, it was nice, because I lost some fat at the same time. Uh, but... I cannot claim it was just that exercise. Mm. I did one electrical stem and three of the uh, the computerized resistance training ones that you just did downstairs. Mm. And uh, a couple of yoga classes in there too. It was like... Whoosh. So I'm going to be doing another round of those at some point just for fun. I don't want to get I'd any rather, beefier than this.
3: Yeah, you watch it. Uh, and, and I digress. Yet The last thing I'll say, uh, one of the effective workout routines that I'm doing is I take my shirt size, and then I wear a shirt two sizes smaller than that. I can't say enough for how much bigger that makes my muscles look.
1: It's working for me right now. Yeah. I mean, I wash the shirt in hot water, and I gained like five pounds of muscle.
3: Yeah, so wearing your wife's shirts, I think, is working so well for you. Yeah,
1: the, the back straps are particularly attractive, I think.
3: <laughs> Thank you for having me on, Dave. This has <laughs> been a man. treat.
1: It, it's, it's been great fun, JP. And I look forward to uh, to hanging out next time we get a chance to hang out. And hopefully you'll be at the next Bulletproof Conference. We'll see if we can get your travel to, to line up. I'd love to. Before we sign off, uh, how to be ultra spiritual, where do people go to get this? Are you doing some sort of a book launch? You think we didn't plan any of this. I just
3: Yeah, really you, you can really get it anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can also go to howtobeultraspiritual.com. But really anywhere you want to get it online is a, the best place. All right. Have an awesome day, and since
1: you're listening and all of that, if you liked this episode, which I gotta say, we went places that I don't normally go in these episodes—a lot of personal development stuff—from someone who's both trained in personal development and comedy, which is cool. Go to iTunes, take five seconds to express some gratitude, and just leave a little five-star review because it really helps people know that this is a good podcast and it is worthy of their time. And then share it with a friend. Say, hey, you should subscribe to this. That's one of the, the biggest things you can do to say thanks to an author is you, you buy a copy of their book or you tell someone else about them. And that's what lets good ideas spread. So thanks for doing that. Before we sign off, I've got to ask you the Bulletproof question. Mm. Things you've heard enough episodes of Bulletproof, you already know the question, don't you?
3: I'm gonna pretend like I don't know.
1: Oh, awesome! So, so fake sincerity—that's that's so cool. I,
3: I, I like. Actually, I don't know. I've listened. Said, oh, right. I don't difference. have a. I haven't been taking enough brain octane. So you
1: haven't actually ever heard the show before? Is, is that what I'm hearing?
3: You, uh, so you're saying you do have a podcast? <laughs> Lovely. I thought yeah. all this equipment was just for show.
1: Here, here's the question: If someone came to you tomorrow mm-hmm. and said, "I want to perform better at everything I do," yeah. what are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me? What would you tell them?
3: Uh, Great. So make yourself intentionally uncomfortable every damn day, just like we mentioned. Um, Meditate. And then practice the living heck out of whatever it is you do. Uh, I I, I am into hacking the system. And I also am a fan of kind of like the old cliche 10,000 hour rule to mastery. Man, I think that deserves respect. So... Practice your craft. Love it. Thanks, JP. You're welcome, brother.
0: The human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.